0: We we just finished a seven-week series in Malachi, and we are today beginning a ten-week series in the letter uh, to the Philippians. Uh, Paul and Timothy, they sent this letter to the church in Philippi, and we're going to be studying it for the next ten weeks. So this is really exciting. We're beginning a new series. Uh, So before we get into the letter itself, I figured a quick overview of the letter would be helpful. Um, It's important to keep in mind, when you're reading any letter in the New Testament... Uh, doesn't matter which one, Uh, you are reading somebody else's mail. And keeping that in mind is helpful because it reminds you that you're only getting part of the picture. You're getting the vantage point of the author, of the writer. And from what the author writes, you can discover a great deal about uh, what is going on in that original context. Uh, But you can also discover more about what's going on in that context from other parts of Scripture. Acts 16, for example, tells us a lot about Paul's missionary journey in Philippi, And then we also fill in the picture through uh, cultural context that we've discovered outside of the scriptures. So what we know of the Greco-Roman world helps us fill in the picture of what's going on to the recipient's end of the letter. Uh, so just keeping that in mind this morning, uh, when, you, when you read a letter, uh, you have to know what it meant before you can know what it means. As for Philippians, uh, this much is undisputed. Two things. Paul wrote the letter. And he wrote it while he was in jail. These are like the undisputed facts that you can take home with you. Paul wrote the letter, he wrote it while he was in jail. Uh, Where he wrote it from, we're not entirely sure. Uh, There's two real contenders. Popular consensus says he wrote it from from Rome, which means he would have uh, written it around the early 60s, 60 AD. Um, But a good case, in my opinion, could be made for Ephesus. And if he wrote from Ephesus, that means the letter was written in the mid-50s. Either way, he was imprisoned. We know this much. in Paul's day and age, when he was imprisoned, you have to realize this, the, the prison system wasn't as luxurious as our prison systems today. It's not like you're getting a free ride uh, even though you're imprisoned. Uh, you weren't supplied food. Uh, you weren't given any food. You, you, you were pretty much at the mercy of any friends or family uh, who would come and visit you and provide for your needs. Uh, it, was, it was a very difficult time and situation to be in. Uh, And so Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi partly in response to how they sent people to provide for him, to care for him while he was in prison. And the church in Philippi, uh, it it was a church that Paul himself founded. It's an eastern city in Macedonia that would today be northern Greece. uh, And it's the first place in Europe that heard the gospel of Jesus. Uh, We know from other sources that Uh, The city of Philippi um, was a predominantly Roman city with a lot of army veterans. This was where a lot of the army veterans retired. And so there was a deep loyalty to Rome. Uh, There was a deep loyalty to Caesar. You have people who had fought to see Rome established. You had people who had seen their friends give their lives to have Rome established. When people greeted one another in the streets, they would greet one another by saying, Caesar is Lord. And we'll see in a couple weeks, this is why Paul talks a great deal about citizenship. Where is your true citizenship? We also see in this letter um, a more personal side of Paul. Uh, Galatians, for example. You know, Paul says, you know, Paul, the apostle. You foolish Galatians. Like this is his opener, very, very soft opener. In this letter, uh, a softer side of Paul is on display. He's full of thanks. He's full of gratitude. Uh, it's described as a friendship letter. Because we see more of his heart. But even though we see a more personal Paul, um, his heart still beats with his pastoral and theological and missional impulse. Uh, When he shares his heart with the church, he also pastors them. When he shares his heart, he also imparts theology. When he shares his heart, he praises them, but he calls them to continue participating in God's mission in the world. Our passage today, uh, Philippians 1, uh, verses 1 through 11, it contains what could be said is the motto of the letter. Verse 6 The God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This sums up Philippians. The God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's because of this truth uh, that Paul isn't defeated by being in prison. Rather, he's overwhelmed with joy because of the stunning totality of the gospel. He offers thanks and affection and praise because of the gospel. And it's his aim throughout the letter to remind the church in Philippi that the God who started the work in their lives will bring it all the way to completion. And between now and then, they have to continue joining God in his work of renewal within the world. So as we begin Philippians this morning, I want to take a look at one big idea. Because of the stunning totality of the gospel, we have a joy bigger than ourselves. So first, we're going to look at the joy of the gospel. Second, we're going to look at the struggle of the gospel. And lastly, uh, we're going to look at the ongoing, enduring nature of the joy of the gospel. So the joy of the gospel, the struggle of the gospel, the ongoing uh, joy of the gospel. Open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Remember, Paul's in jail, yet his circumstances don't rob him of joy. He's, he's imprisoned, he's dependent on the mercy of others to, to provide food and water for him, but he's filled with joy. He's, he's praying, he's, he's giving thanks. And, and throughout the letter that he writes while in prison, he, he calls the community to rejoice nine times. He talks about joy five other times. He, uh, he is very concerned that the church uh, understand the joy that is in following Jesus. But what sort of joy is he talking about? What sort of joy is this? The movie uh, Love Actually. Uh, guys, uh, it's okay. Liam Neeson's in it. It's manly. You can admit you like it. Uh, Great movie, great movie, and, and you remember the opening scene, you know you have the dreamy, uh, what's his name, Hugh Grant, and he, he's narrating. He says, whenever I get gloomy about the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at the Heathrow Airport. I can't do accents, but um, <laughs> this is the opening line. And and you get get bombarded, right, with with image after image after image of image of people filled with joy and happiness because they're being reunited with loved ones that they haven't seen in a while. And even for those of us with robot-like emotions, we are, are warmed by the opening of this movie. Because the joy that we can feel towards other people is absolutely stunning, isn't it? I remember the joy of my wedding day. I remember uh, the joy of Ansley being born. I remember the joy of of seeing other friends uh, celebrate major milestones in their lives. The the joy we can feel towards other people and, and the joy they're experiencing. It's absolutely stunning. But there's something deeper being said in this opening scene in Love Actually. Hugh Grant is actually recognizing that his joy is found outside of himself. And he's on to something here. Now, for him, it's the arrival's gate at the Heathrow Airport. Um, that's where he finds joy in others. Uh, and, and we know this. We know what it is to find joy outside of ourselves, whether it's a place or a thing or a person. Uh, for some of us, yeah, sure, it's the Heathrow Airport. Uh, but for many others, it's, it's the joy of hanging out with friends. It's the joy of being home on vacation and seeing your family. It's the joy of being on, on vacation, period, period. It's the joy that the sun is out. And come on, let's be honest. In Vancouver, we know that joy, the joy of the sun. It's the joy of a good cup of coffee. It's it's the joy of a parking space opening just at the right minute, you know? Uh, It's the joy of Ren and Stimpy. Happy, happy, joy, joy. Like, whatever it is, um, joy. We, we, We know what it is to find joy outside of ourselves. But we also know how the joy that we find outside of ourselves isn't so stable and how it can be fleeting. I often wonder, in, in Love Actually, if they showed a real you know, airport arrival scene. You know, Like the, the, the parents who just traveled with the newborn for the first time, like them you know, getting off the plane, the person who's on the phone because their friend forgot to pick them up and they're furious. Uh, you, you know, the, the child who's getting handed off because uh, their parents are divorced and they're being escorted by an airport supervisor because no parents is there. Yeah, yeah, joy, it can be robbed from us. Uh, we know this in our own lives. Um, We have joy in our friends, but then they they move away. We have joy being home for the holidays, but the holidays end. We have joy over the parking spot, only to return and have a parking ticket. Um, We have joy over our childhood cartoons, only to grow up and realize they're really weird. Um, Or hear me out. You know the joy of, say, a friend named Alistair uh, buying you a chocolate Kinder Egg. Why? Because gifts just seem to be your love language, especially food gifts. And I don't know, maybe your name's Roger Revel, and... um, (laughs) What you do is you leave your treasured, you know, gift egg on your desk for two weeks in the office. Two weeks. And Alistair sees this egg every single day. And so he eats it. Uh, and you, you just know the, the, how joy can be robbed from you, you know. And this happens to you not once but twice because I bought him another egg. And so uh, to make this up to Roger... Uh, I bought him an even larger kinder egg. This was like the Easter edition. And I was so proud of this. And Roger, I gave it to him and he said, you know what, I'm going to take it home. It's just so you don't eat it this time. I said, you know what, this is a good decision. And yesterday I had lunch with Roger. I said, how is that kinder egg, by the way? Easter's over. He said, you know what happened? I left it on my living room table and my roommates ate it. And I just, I like to think that I helped Roger prepare for the meaningless suffering that there is in the world. You know, Um, but we, we know We know, don't we, what it is to find joy outside of ourselves. But we know how unstable that joy is and how that joy can be robbed from us. We know how that joy can be fleeting. And this sort of joy, if we're honest, is more like a temporary state of happiness. It's it's an emotion that comes for a moment and then is is fleeting. It's hardly a state of being that helps us endure through difficult times. Uh, It seems, actually, that the most trivial bump in the road can can rob us of this kind of emotional joy, can't it? The offhand comment from someone, uh, the friend who forgot to pick you up, uh, the the, the egg getting eaten. These things happen, and we can see our our joy dissipate, and we have to wonder, was this joy at all, or is this just a fleeting emotion? Paul. Paul's in jail, and he is full of joy. And I don't think this is just a happiness. I think this is a state of being. And what sort of Joy is this. It's a joy found outside of himself. This much is true. But the source of Paul's joy, it's more than the affection he feels towards the church in Philippi, although that's there. It's more than the fleeting feelings of happiness or simple pleasures that come and go. No, Paul's joy is the joy of the gospel. Look at verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day Until now, he's saying, I make my prayer with joy because of this. The joy of the gospel. Which means, uh, if you think, if you're here this morning and you think, the the Christian message of the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is what we call the gospel. If you think this is a joyless message, um, I would propose you haven't actually heard the gospel. Because the gospel is fundamentally a joyful message. It is fundamentally a message that contains joy. And Paul, he knows this. His joy is in the church and Philippi's partnership in the gospel. How they've shared in the gospel. And he remembers two things. First, uh, Paul has joy as he remembers the first day. He says from the first day until now. The first day. He remembers how he, he went to Philippi because of a vision. And on the, the seashore, he met a, a woman named Lydia. And how God opened up her heart to receive the gospel. And how she didn't just receive it with joy. Her whole family did. And then her whole family was baptized. That was the first day. He remembers how a slave girl who was demonically oppressed. Was delivered by Jesus. Not just from demonic oppression. But from men who owned her. And and used her for economic advantage. And how Jesus freed her. He remembers how... He went to jail, so Paul had been in jail many times, and, and, and God miraculously freed them, and the jailer was about to commit suicide because it would have cost him his life, and, and Paul shared the gospel, and the man converted, and his whole household became believers, even the little babies, and they were all baptized. That part's not in there, but you know what I mean. Um, Paul, he remembers you know faces, and he remembers names, And he's filled with joy because he remembers how the saving and beautiful power of the gospel came into people's lives. The joy of the the gospel on on one side of the coin is how the gospel saves. The first day. Secondly, though, Paul has joy because he sees the gospel still working through the church's life. From the first day until now. In the letter, he, he speaks of Epaphroditus. He says, risked his life to come provide for Paul in jail. He was sent by the church in Philippi and he came and and Paul rejoices over this because he sees how the, the lordship of Jesus, the gospel, isn't just a theoretical truth that they once encountered in Philippi. It is something that they have put their lives under and they continue to live in light of the implications of the gospel. Which means sharing in other people's suffering at times which means doing sacrificial things, which means following Jesus even when it doesn't make sense. Look at verse 7. I hold you in my heart, for you're all partakers of me with grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul's joy is, is rooted in how the church continues to live under the power of the gospel. How the gospel transforms lives. You see, Paul's joy isn't just over the gospel in theory. His his joy is over the gospel in practice. Now, don't get me wrong. The the message of the gospel in and of itself is beautiful. But the beauty of the gospel shines brighter when we see it uh, shining through people's lives, gripped and transformed and and saved by Jesus. And and we know what it's like to see that. It's joyful. Many of you are here this morning because you've witnessed that. You've you've seen the gospel change your own life. You've seen the gospel change other people's lives. And and it's inherently joyful. But what's different then about the joy of the gospel compared to any other joy we find outside of ourselves? Have you ever had to ask someone forgiveness? And I'm not just talking about a small offense like, you know, oh, I ate your kinder egg, sorry, not sorry. Um, I, I'm talking about, you know, the heavier stuff, the, the weightier stuff, the friendship, you know, ending marriage, destroying family, dividing sort of offense. Have you ever had to ask sorry for that sort of stuff? I went through um, a recovery process a few years ago and and For those of you who've been through recovery, you know that recovery never ends, but a part of that was one of the steps was you you have to reconcile with people to the best of your ability. You have to take a list of your offenses and try to make amends and My list was long and it was painful and sometimes the hardest part was you know i 'd reach out to someone and they wouldn't want to even talk. but there were others who I either wrote a letter to or we met over coffee who who were willing to meet and I'd have to look them in their eyes and I'd have to say, look, no excuses. This is what I did. I own it. I hurt you. Will you forgive me? And there was always a pause after that, which felt like a very, very long pause. And in that pause, I would always feel naked and vulnerable and scared. But then they would say the beautiful words I forgive you. Whenever that happened, I went home not just relieved, but joyful. And there was something different about this joy. It wasn't uh, just because I went from carrying guilt to being freed from guilt, or from feeling distance in a relationship to feeling closeness in a relationship. It wasn't even because I had a list of offensives and now had a clean slate. Um, The joy was different because it's a glimmer of the gospel. There's joy in the gospel because God didn't look at us in our sin and in our brokenness and say, you're too far gone, you're too dirty, you're too broken, I won't forgive you. There's joy because while we were at our worst, God entered into our pain and suffering and said, I'll die for you there, not at your best, not when you think you're deserving, but when you're at your worst, when you think you're unworthy. There's joy in the gospel because God doesn't deal with us at arm's length. There's joy in the gospel because God fundamentally wants to reconcile with people. and There's a different sort of joy in reconciliation. And when you experience reconciliation among people here on earth, it is just a picture into the sort of joy that is available in the reconciliation uh, available in the gospel. But Paul, his joy is not just how the gospel saves His joy is not just how the gospel transformed. Uh, He's overwhelmed with joy because of the totality of the gospel. Look at verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul even says, it's right for me to feel this way about you. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers of grace. Paul's joy is because God started something, he is continuing it, and he will finish it. Uh, His joy is that God will bring it to completion, the good work that he started. And of course, the question is, well, what's the good work? And he says it explicitly. It's grace. You're partakers of grace. You were saved by grace. God's forgiveness to you wasn't because you deserved it or because you cleaned your yourself up so much. It was unmerited. It was was generous. and, And you're saved by that. But God's grace is also active in your life because he's transforming you still. God's grace is empowering presence. And Paul has joy because this love and forgiveness and continuing presence of God, which God began in our lives, he continues it in our lives and he will bring it to completion in our lives. Paul rejoices over the grace of the gospel. He rejoices over the fact that one day God will complete it. That he'll complete it all. That there will be no more tears. There will be no more cracks in our soul. There will be no more suffering. That's Paul's confidence. The totality of the gospel to save and transform and ultimately perfect us. The joy that God will carry us through, not just halfway. That God won't abandon us in the middle, but he will bring it all the way home. That's the joy of the gospel. That's the joy of being reconciled to God. It's it's not the same as just an emotion then. It's a a state of being. It It is a state of being in God's grace, which yes, sometimes carries very heavy emotions. But the joy of the gospel is deeper than emotions. The joy of the gospel is God's grace. But if we're honest... the joy of the gospel can still feel fleeting, can't it? It can, you know, we, we, we've known it at a time, maybe there's great joy when, when you first came to Christ. Um, maybe there's moments of joy, but the day in, day out, it just feels joyless. And you might be left wondering, well, what's, what's really different about the joy of the gospel than the joy I find anywhere else in the world? And for some of you here, you're just not... Uh, naturally joyful, right? Like your disposition is just not joyful. You're sort of an Eeyore like me. Uh, like my, my natural proclivity is not to be a, a glass um, half full kind of guy. Uh, and and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I really had a tough time preparing this text because I'm looking at this and, and I don't feel joy all the time. And and I can, I can look at these commands to be joyful. I can look at how Paul is joyful and I can start to feel shame and, and, and guilt for not exhibiting this joy that I think I'm supposed to contain, um, not just as a minister, but as a follower of Jesus. And I, if I'm honest, I can be really skeptical towards people who seem to be too joyful. It's hard. And I get And I think many of you here get why David prays, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because it's easy to feel like we have to muster up some sort of joy. Or fake a smile. Or to feel like um, we need to express joy to others. But when we live in, in that realm where we feel like we have to muster up joy in the gospel, it feels like a lot of work. We can read verses 9 and 10 here in Philippians and feel worse. Paul writes, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't this the kind of thing that robs us of joy when we read our Bibles? I have to be more loving? I have to be loving with knowledge and discernment? How does love connect with knowledge and discernment? Now I have to go get a commentary and read that, and that feels like a a lot of work. I I have to pursue excellence. I have to be pure. I have to be blameless. This all feels like a lot of work. The pressure, the responsibilities, the actions we have to take, uh, the checklists, they can rob us of joy. It slips away, and suddenly um, life with Jesus feels more like a burden than a joy. When Paul says that we have to be pure and blameless, uh, we start to think that our transformation here and now and between now and eternity is entirely on our own shoulders. And that's deeply discouraging because we know deep down, no matter how hard we try, we will never be pure and blameless before God. Verses 9 and 10, they can be so discouraging because they seem antithetical to grace. Uh, How on earth can we be expected to be pure and blameless? And so we start to lose the joy of the gospel because we start living as if we have to work for the joy of the gospel or we start thinking that our experience of joy is dependent on ourselves. But that isn't what's going on here in Philippians. If Paul was actually calling us in verse 9 to be pure and blameless, then yes, it would be crushing to us. It would deplete our joy. But that's not what Paul's doing. This is Paul's prayer for the church. This is not Paul's instruction. This is not his checklist. This is his prayer. He is praying that God, the God who began a good work, would continue to bring about the good work in their lives. He's praying for the church. Because he knows the church can't accomplish this on their own. And to make that crystal clear, Paul writes in verse 11, that we may be filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This growing in love, this growing in excellence, this growing in purity and blamelessness, it's not something we make happen in our lives. It's something that Christ enacts in our lives. It's something that comes through Jesus. It's something that happens because the God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Jesus is doing something in us that we are not capable of bringing about in ourselves. It's so important to understand that uh, our joy isn't dependent on our ability to muster up joy in the gospel. Our joy is not found in ourselves. Take a look at verse 8 with me. You might have noticed I skipped over this verse. I'm saving the best for last. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Look look at this photo. Uh, what do you see? Right? You see a park, uh, some trees, you see buildings, uh, you see the mountains, you see some skyline. And if you look really hard, you see some cars and some people. But it's it's a generally pretty s- stunning photo of, of Vancouver, right? This is beautiful. You don't see the, the glass window, do you? You don't see the window pane. Why? Because that's not the point of the window. The point of the window is to highlight and frame the beauty. In the same way, Paul is but a window to Christ. Paul's affection and all of the things he describes of how he feels towards the church, he says, is really just my affections. Um, They are pointing towards the affections of Christ. This is Christ's affections working in and through me. And they are just a glimmer of the affection Christ has towards us. How beautiful is that? All of the joy, all of the things we see here in Philippians are a glimpse of the affections Christ has towards us. So when we read it, we can hear Christ say, I'm thankful for you. I remember you. I won't let you go. I hold you in my heart. I always pray for you with joy. Paul's saying we shouldn't hear those coming out of just his mouth. We should hear Christ speaking. Because the joy of the gospel is found in the fact that Jesus has joy in us. and That his joy towards us does not change. It's his joy, not ours. But it becomes ours. How do we know that's true? Well, first, Paul says from start to finish and everywhere in between, it is God's joy to bring grace into your life. It's God's uh, joy, it, this is the stunning totality of the gospel, that it was God's joy to send his son, even um, despite the cost, even though Christ would have to lay down his life. It was his joy to save us. It, was his, it is his joy to be present in our lives through the Holy Spirit, uh, transforming us. It is God's joy to ultimately bring us to completion, which is why the author of Hebrews writes, for the joy set before him Jesus endured the cross. Now on one level, that is talking about Christ returning to the glory he had with the Father before he entered into creation. This is about the joy of Christ returning to the right hand of God. But it also is about the joy Christ feels towards bringing an adopted family with him into the heavenly place. It is the joy of Christ bringing about our reconciliation. It was his joy in us that he endured the cross for us and scorned its shame. Think about the power of that. Secondly, we can trust that Christ really has joy in us and over us. Because Jesus himself prays that his his joy might be fulfilled in us in the gospel of John. This is Christ's prayer, that we would have his joy. The ongoing joy of the gospel in your life is the truth that Jesus' joy over you doesn't cease. His desire of joy to be in you doesn't change, and he will ultimately fulfill that joy in you in eternity. Should at least make you crack a little bit of a smile. Or none at all. But a little. Look. I get it. A sermon, if you struggle with depression, if you struggle with ongoing sadness, um, hopelessness, a sermon's not going to fix it. I I just have to recognize that. And I want you to know, um, at St. Peter's, we want to be a community where you can be honest about this sort of stuff. I, I want this to be a community where you can say, you know what, I don't feel joy about this message. I believe it but I don't feel the joy and I feel kind of messed up that I don't. And I want you to know that as you are today is is, is as you are today and God loves you in this place and we, we meet you in this place and we want to walk with you in figuring out what it's like to experience the ongoing joy of the gospel. We want to pray with you that you might experience that more, that we all might experience that more, that I might experience that more. But when we ask, you know, do we want the ongoing joy? Of the gospel. Yeah, of course we do. Of course we want this joy. And the truth is it's because of the stunning totality of the gospel that we have a joy bigger than ourselves. We have Jesus' own joy being fulfilled in us. Jesus prays that you would have it. Paul prays that you would have it. I pray that you would have it. I pray that I might have it too. For those of you that are here and and you've never encountered this joy, it's all available.